be combat there. How many of you um, parents will admit to at least once in your parenting so far <clears throat> to having looked in the rearview mirror or perhaps even glancing backwards, but I hope you kept your eyes on the road, and muttering something like that to your kids? How many of you admit that? That's right. It is hard being a parent. I'd like to suggest to you that it is probably the hardest job in the world. How many parents would agree with that? Of course you do, right? I mean, there's a lot of joy to parenting. I've, Mar Marcia and I have experienced a lot of that. There's been a lot of joy in parenting. But you know, parenting can cause you to lose your hair. <laughs> and parenting can cause you, if you don't lose your hair, to earn a few gray hairs. And that reminds me of a story about a little girl. She was sitting at the kitchen table, and her mom was up washing dishes. And the um, little girl's just kind of studying and observing her mom. And she noticed that mom had a couple of white hairs that were showing in her otherwise brunette head. And so she said, Mommy, where do those white hairs come from? And um, her mom said, well, honey, every time that you're naughty <laughs> and um, you make mama cry, one of her hairs turns white. The little girl pondered that for a while and suddenly had this revelation that she turned into a question she was a wise little girl. She said, well then, mommy, why is it that your mommy, grandma, has so many white hairs? <laughs> Don't you love the wisdom of kids? Because every parent here was a kid one day, right? And all of us probably deserve to have our parents at some point say, Don't make me come back there. Like I said, parenting is not an easy job. It is, it is a hard job. And what we want to do for the next four weekends is we want to talk about parenting. We're going to take a little bit of a break from our series that we've been doing, Grasping God's Big Story. We'll get back to that in four weeks. But what we want to do is we want to set aside these four weeks as, you know, as we head towards spring, I think, and summer, I hope, all right? And, you know, things change, dynamics change with families. I just, I just want to look at God's Word and draw out some really practical principles to help you and me in our parenting and our grandparenting, okay? Now, as soon as I say that, I know that there are some of you who are wondering to yourself, well, um, I'm single, I'm, I'm not married, I'm, obviously I'm not a parent, so should I go visit other churches for the next four weekends? And the answer to the question is, no, you should not. All right? The reason you shouldn't is because maybe someday you will be a parent. Maybe someday you will have family. You'll be married. It is far better to learn ahead of time what you're getting yourself into and how to prepare for it, all right, than find yourself in the deep end of the pool all of a sudden, okay? Uh, some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, I have no intention to get married. 
I have no intention of being a parent. I'm past those years. It's not God's calling on my life. Well, I want you to know that the principles we're going to talk about apply to anybody, all right? It's very, you can apply it whether you're our parent or not, whether you're married or not. But those of us who are single, those of you who are single probably know somebody who's married, maybe in your family. We have friends who are married, who have, who have families. And this will help you know how to pray better for them. And, and when they're sharing with you their struggles, know how to maybe interact with them and, you know, counsel them a little bit as kind of an outsider looking in. And then for our students, my goodness, um, you're going to learn a lot about your parents in this series, how, how to interact with them. Uh, uh, Pastor Kyle's going to talk to you next weekend about your role you know, in terms of the family. So there's just a lot for everybody in this whole process together. So I think it's going to be a, a good series. Are you excited about it? Yeah. Even if you're not, I hope you are. All right? So uh, let's stand, because uh, we're going to look at several passages of Scripture. Let's all stand together. And just out of respect for the Word of God, it's truth. Let me read uh, these verses for you as uh, you uh, listen in. This comes from Ephesians chapter 6, in case you want to follow along. Ephesians chapter 6, the New Testament, beginning at verse 1. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Because this first message is focused on, on dads in particular, but it applies to everybody, I'd like to ask all the dads, granddads in the room only to read verse 4 with me. Ready? Here we go. Let's do it again. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Now, sometimes I think we get this mistaken notion that parenting uh, has never been harder than it is in our day and in our age. And I will, I will grant it that, that it's, it's not easy parenting in these days. It is hard. But I want you to know it was, it was just as hard, if not harder, in the ancient times. Now, even though we're applying the, the message to, to everybody, I, I do want to aim it in particular at those of us who are fathers, those of us who are dads, who might be someday. And I just want to say that in the ancient days, amongst the Roman Greco, the Gentile men, particularly husbands and fathers, fathers had absolute authority over their entire family. And it was not always very healthy. For instance, it was not unusual for a Roman Greco Gentile husband to have a wife for childbearing and several mistresses for pleasure. That was not unusual. It was not unusual for a father to treat his sons and daughters like slaves to not really have affection and love for them, but to think of them more as an asset or a liability. And in fact, Roman fathers, if they wanted, could just simply, you know, discard a child. For instance, 
especially little girls, were so vulnerable to this. If the father wanted a son and his wife birthed a daughter, he'd just throw her off in the streets, in the gutter, let her die or get picked up and be adopted or, you know, turn into a sex slave or whatever it was that happened out there in the streets. A father's authority followed their children even into adulthood. They had authority over their lives. So imagine what it was like to be a brand new convert to Christianity, to Christ. You're a Roman, Greco, husband, father, and this letter is read to you, and you hear the inspired words of the Holy Spirit saying to you, now that you follow Christ, you cannot father, you cannot husband the way you used to. That you must now father and husband the way Christ would. Which meant there had to be this radical and dramatic shift that would take place. And so when you start to unpack this passage of Scripture, which Kyle and I are going to be unpacking for you, there are principles that begin to emerge that help us to discover, well, how does God want us to parent? How does God want me to be a son or a daughter or a grandson or a granddaughter? How does, how does God want me to act and behave, in particular as a father? And what I want to do is I want to share with you what I call practical parenting principles. And here's the first one. The first principle is simply this. We've got to learn to parent out of love. Pretty simple, huh? We have to learn how to parent out of the motivation, the intentionality of love. Now, do you see how that applies to all of us? Even if you're not married, if you're not a parent? It means that as an individual, when you and I, as followers of Christ, go to work, we should go to work out of a motive of love. Love for our fellow employees, love for that cranky boss, love for, you know, whomever we meet. When I go to school, I should go to school in a motive of love for my teachers, my coaches, my fellow students. When I go shopping, I should go with a motive of love for the people that are around me in the mall or wherever it is I happen to go. Everything we do, everything we do as followers of Christ should proceed out of a motive of love because that's Christ. He did everything out of love. Now, we could say amen, go home, and that would be enough of a message, wouldn't it? To really think and pray about how am I doing? Am I parenting out of love? Am I living out of love? Am I manifesting? Am I showing love to others? The challenge comes, however, when you don't experience being loved, it is hard to show love. About I don't know, last fall, I think it was, Kyle, you and I decided that you would preach Easter this year. And I listened online. Kyle did a great job. I was going to be here to be supportive and, and, to, and to just do a different part of the service. But I was unable to be here because my dad got really sick and I had to fly down to Florida. So God's providence is always amazing, right? What he knew before and, and how he lined it all up. But when I got down and saw my dad, I realized it's the sickest I've ever seen him. He did not look good. And that night, uh, about 1.30 in the morning, he fell flat on the floor, uh, bloodied up. I cleaned him up. I took him to the emergency room because he refused to go in the ambulance. He's a stubborn Dutchman. And uh, in the ER, they started running tests, and we began to realize his situation was pretty serious, and he had to be hospitalized. And then after being hospitalized, 
and they ran more tests, we realized that he wasn't going to go home from the hospital. We thought maybe he would go home from, to a skilled nursing facility for a while, but as things progressed, I had to make a difficult decision and place him in hospice, and he passed away Monday night. So things happen fast. And as I sat by my dad's bed and, uh, and just kind of watched the life fade out of him and, and see him transition, and by the way, he's in a much better place, much better place than me. <laughs> um, but, but as I sat there and I watched him, I kind of rehearsed in my mind my dad's life and my mom's life. And I, you know, my mom, dad, like some of you, and, so, and some of your parents came from very, very dysfunctional homes. My, my mom's dad abandoned her when she was like two years old. My dad's dad never once, my dad told me, never once ever told my dad that he loved him. Never hugged my dad. And when my dad decided he wanted to be a missionary, he made fun of my dad and mocked him for it. The result of that was that my dad shared with me, actually not that long ago, how, how much he personally struggled with thinking of God as a loving father. Because how we think about fatherhood is very much related to our earthly fathers. So if you have an earthly father who doesn't love you or doesn't show that love or talk about that to you or demonstrate it physically to you, then it's hard to think about God that way. And my father, my grandfather, was a mean person. I never felt comfortable in his midst or in his presence. He was very distant to me. He was very harsh to me. So, so how do you love, right? How do you love when that's not happening in your life? And it seems to be a big problem in our society today, not just the older generation. And, and I think that if we were to ask ourselves, what is wrong with our society today? What is, what is happening? Why is there so much violence? Why is there so much immorality? Why is there so much chaos? Why is there so much confusion? I think a lot of it traces its way back to dads who are missing. Um, I look back at some statistics from the 2020 census and find out that there are 18.3 million, 18.3 million children under the age of 18 in the United States who are living in households without a biological or adoptive father present. 18.3 million. That's one in four. And it has, it has exponentially increased since, let's say, the 1960s. In the 1960s, only 8% of children lived in fatherless households compared with 25% in 2020, and it's not getting better. Now, I want all the men listening to me, particularly husbands and, and fathers, I, I'm not here to shame us, to guilt us. I'm here to simply say, look, let's not be part of those statistics. For lack of better terms, let's man up, let's father up, let's husband up. And if you're thinking about failures you've had in your past, my goodness, you know, if you did fail as a father or husband in the past, 
The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, forgive us our sins, and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is the God of the new day. Starts, let the past go and start being the man that God wants you to be now. And, and that applies to all of us. Start being the mom that God wants you to be now. Start being the wife that God wants you to be now. Start being the son or daughter or the student that God wants you to be now. Start being the friend that God wants you and me to be now. Because that is so vitally important. So the question is, well then, but how do you, how do you love, as, especially as a man, as a father, how do you love if you haven't been loved well? And that takes us to the second parenting principle, and that's this. Believe and receive the fact that God loves you no matter what. See, that applies to everybody in the room. Everybody. That's, I told you this applied to everybody. But men, especially you, fathers, especially you, husbands, especially you, believe and receive the fact that God loves you no matter what. In fact, let's, um, I'd like to have all the men, students, men, single, married, doesn't matter to me. I'd like to hear all the men. Let's say this point together. Ready? Believe and receive the fact that God loves you no matter what. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. John writes this, and he says, we love each other because, finish it with me, he first loved us, or he loved us first. Why does God love you and me? You know this stuff. You guys, you guys are, you've been around long enough. You know why, you know why God loves us? He loves us because he chooses to. He does not love us because we're good-looking. He does not love us because we're smart. He does not love us because we're so good. There's no reason, human reason, for God to love us. We crucified his son. He chooses to love us unconditionally. And we have to believe it and we have to receive it. Now, here's the challenge, okay? If I were to ask you, do you believe that God loves you? Many of you, most of you would say, yes, I believe that God loves me. I believe that God is love. The Bible says God is love, and I believe that God loves me. But the question is, do you receive that love? And I would say that there are many of us who will say, yes, I believe God loves me, but you don't receive the fact that he loves you. Say, so what do you mean by that? Let me illustrate it. It would be like me saying to you that my wife, Marcia, who's sitting down here, it would be like me saying to you, I know Marcia loves me. But Marcia then walked up on the stage to hug me, and I put my arms out and stiff-armed her. Then what I'm saying and what I'm actually experiencing are two different things. I'm saying, I believe Marcia loves me, but I'm not letting her love me. I'm not receiving her love. And a lot of us stiff-arm God. We say, yes, I believe God loves me, but for some reason we won't let him love us. I don't know if it's because we like to feel sorry for ourselves. We like playing the victim. I don't know if it's because somebody made us feel like we're unlovable and can't be loved and we didn't have a father who loved us, but I'm here to tell you right now, listen carefully, God loves you. You can hate him. You can turn your back against him. You can forsake him. You can say, I'd rather go to hell. It won't stop God from loving you. It is God's nature. And you got to believe it, 
and you've got to receive it. Because if you can't receive it, if you can't accept it, if you can't embrace it, it is going to hinder you from then being the kind of father, the kind of mother, the kind of person that God wants you and me to be. I came across this verse the other day, and I, I'm never going to forget this verse. I love what it says. It's very simple. It's in the, the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. How many of you read Jude lately? Probably not too many of you. All right. Here's what it says. It's only one chapter long, so I encourage you to read it. Jude chapter 1, verse 21. Let's read it together. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So in other words, you're in the waiting room, waiting for Jesus to come. And Jude says, look, while you're waiting, keep yourselves in the love of God. This last week, the weather has been fabulous, hasn't it? I mean, a couple of days, right? In the 80s. It's just wonderful. And only Minnesotans can appreciate this, right? I noticed in my neighborhood that some people got their, got their lawn chairs out and they were actually, they were actually sitting in the sun. I went, I went for a, a run uh, down to a lake near our house and I was just surprised. Here's, it's, I mean, there's still some ice out on that lake and here's some, here's some young ladies out at the beach in the sun. All two days of it. Going to get tan, right? What are they doing? They're putting themselves in the sun. You and I have a responsibility, God says, to put ourselves mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually in the spotlight of God's love. That means I have to actively remind myself, tell myself, God loves me, and stop listening to all the other voices that may be showing up in my mind and my heart. In the book that I wrote called Reset, there's a chapter in there where I give an exercise specifically. And I talk about, you know, if you're struggling to think about how God loves you, how God cares about you, the next time you take a shower, stand in that shower. And as that water washes over you, imagine that it represents the streams of God's love. Let it wash away your guilt. Let it wash away your shame. Let it be streams of mercy pouring over you. Let it be a reminder that God is always, always, always loving you. Dads, men, fathers, when is the last time you took a really good, long, hot, spiritual shower? You just let God love you. You stood there and let him love you. See, I can tell, and you can tell how aware I am that God loves me. And I can tell how aware you are that God loves you by the way you behave toward others. And particularly as men, as husbands, how we behave toward our spouse and how we behave toward our kids informs them and the rest of us how much we really believe that God loves us. Now, if you really believe that God loves you, it's going to help you, listen to what I'm saying, it's going to help you overcome four don'ts. Four don'ts of parenting. This is, you know, this could be true for moms as well, any of us, but particularly for men, okay? So here's the first don't, all right? 
This all comes from that Ephesians passage. Don't aggravate your children. I confess to you, I, I have a minor in aggravation. <laughs> Maybe I have a major in it. I don't know. All right? One of the reasons why is because my dad was an aggravator. And his dad was an aggravator. And, you know, we tend to behave the way we've been behaved towards. It's hard to break. To aggravate means if I'm aggravated, if my kids aggravate me, if my wife aggravates me, if you aggravate me, my tendency is to say, okay, you push my button, I'm going to push your button. And we can do it passively, aggressively, we can do it demonstratively. There are all kinds of ways. But listen, if you truly know you're loved by God, who will never aggravate you, you'll be less prone to aggravate others. Don't aggravate your kids. Don't upset them just to upset them. Don't push their buttons because they push your buttons. Now that's hard to do, isn't it? That's hard to do. Number two, don't humiliate your children. Don't humiliate your children. My father's father humiliated him. My dad struggled with that in his own life and would humiliate my brother and me, and that caused a lot of anger in us at times, especially when he did it in public. Because listen carefully, when you, when you make fun of, when you sarcasm about your kids, when you shame them in front of public, you send a message to all their peers their coaches, their teachers, whoever witnesses it, you send a message to them that it's okay for them not to humiliate your kid as well. You cannot stand in the shower of God's love knowing how much he loves you and walk out of that shower and go humiliate people. Because if anyone ever had the right to humiliate us, it is God, but he didn't. He elevated us instead. Number three, don't Live your dreams out through your children. Now, we've all heard that, right? But don't live your dreams out through your children. Listen, your job, my job, I'm going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. Our job is to help our children find God's dream for them. See, God's already wired into your kids a purpose. God's already wired into them gifts, talents, and abilities. And our job is to help them discover what that might be. Now, we all have good ideas of what it should be, but, and I hate to break this news to you, but I, I want you to know that your kid is probably not going to play professional hockey <laughs> or baseball or football or soccer or win America's Idol or whatever the, the thing is, all right? It's probably not going to happen. They may, but I doubt it's going to happen. So don't live, you know, don't make your kid famous for you. Don't make them a, a scholar-athlete for you. Don't make them successful for you. Only if I live in the unconditional outpouring of God's love can I be freed. Can I be free to let other people be who God created them to be and to live in their love. Number four, don't let them feel they can't make mistakes. I tell you what, we live, this is true in Chicago land, it is true up here in Minnesota, especially in the suburbs. 
and I'm one of them. There are so many of us that are type A's. And there's an unhealthy side to being type A, and that is we don't allow for mistakes. In a competitive culture, we demand perfection, and our kids are incapable of perfection. But they, if they feel they have to be perfect, then it makes them so anxious. Because they look at us. They look at our lives. They look at how we speak. They look at our demands on ourselves, our demands on each other. And they walk away and they go, oh, I guess i got to be like that. I don't know if I can. And kids are going to make mistakes. Now, what's the difference between sin and mistake? Sin is when I purposely break a moral absolute. I lie, that's a sin. How do you deal with that? You confront the lie, you apply correction, and maybe a consequence. A mistake is done in ignorance. I'm talking about a true mistake. Didn't hand my homework and I forgot about it. I didn't take notes. Well, yes, I should have taken notes. I should have written it down, but I didn't. I forgot. I, I made this mistake. So I confront the ignorance by saying, okay, let's apply wisdom. I accept you're not guilty. I'm not going to hold this against you. But what can we learn from this? How do we not make that mistake again? Two totally different ways of approaching it. Kids are going to make mistakes. Their parents make mistakes. We've got to give them some breathing room when it comes to those things. You know, one of the things that helps us in this is when we coach dads, especially fathers, when we coach our children how to process things. My daughter, Bethany, has a graduate degree in social work, and uh, she is finishing a book on how to parent anxious children. Because their daughter, our granddaughter, and I can say this because it's part of the book, it comes out of the story of a terrible bout of anxiety that our granddaughter went through. Terrible. And how, how they worked through that, how we worked through that as family. And one of the things I appreciate so much about my daughter is, is how careful and attentive she is in her parenting to helping my grand, our grandkids, my grandkids, helping, um, helping her kids process life. And she has this quote in the book. It's a long quote, and I want to read it for you. She gave me this chapter on processing. She says, as a parent, you can become your child's teacher, and as they get older, their coach. Not only can you model the behaviors you want your child to learn, you can actively be talking with them and helping them process what they are seeing, what they are hearing, what they're experiencing and feeling in the world around them. Here's the best part. Our children learn a filter by which to interpret their experiences and information they receive from the world. You can let the media in all its forms or their friends shape their filter, or you can take an active role in teaching your child how to filter truth through a biblical world view. But it has to be something you coach into them. And then she has all these exercises, but here's how I've watched my daughter do it. It always happens going to school and from school because they live a distance away. And from very little, Bethany's done such a good job of getting her kids to talk and share and, and not being harsh or judgmental on them when they do. So when the kids get in the car, she says, how was your day? And they say, well, the teacher is kind of mean. Bethany's approach is to say, well, tell me, what was that like? This is the therapist in her. What did you hear? Why do you think she was that way? What if you'd been her? How would you have handled it? Well, that, that boy pushed me. Well, why do you think he did that? 
What do you think is going on in his home? How do you think that should have been handled? What do you think is the right way to respond? And all she's doing is she's getting them to take what they're learning from her and her husband about God, about truth, about life, and process it and come up with their own owned ways of how it should be dealt with. So that they begin to use truth as a filter. I'm going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks. They begin to use truth as a filter for how to handle what is taking place in their lives. Bethany said the biggest problem she sees, the biggest battle in parenting is we want to get to the product right away. We don't want to go through the process. And good parenting takes a lot of process and time. And you and I do not live in a world that allows for that. Everything has to be hurried. I've got to come alongside my kids. I've got to help them process what's happening in their day, process what's happening in their emotions, process what's happening in their relationships and what's happening with people. But process it from the point of view of the truth, arriving at their own conclusions. And that just does not happen overnight. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Well, I'm going to stop there because I ran out of time. But I want to give you the last point, which I'll pick up in a couple of weeks. And that is the third principle. Point them to the right path and walk in it with them. Well, we're going to expand on that, right? But right now, the idea is tell them, you know, point at them and say, that's the path you need to walk in. But listen... Don't say walk in that path and you take a different path. Walk in the path with them. Say, that tells them that this path you believe is right and this path you believe is truth. And of course, as followers of Christ, we believe that the path they should be walking in is the path of God's word. Amen. So I want to close with a real quick story about my dad. So my dad uh, was in the hospital and when we realized that, that his heart was just was failing him, that he's going to have to go on dialysis. I knew from previous conversations that my dad didn't want that. So we decided to go for comfort care and into hospice. And they took all, all the meds away. They took all, you know, it was all going to be about comfort now. And it's interesting because when they did that, my dad perked up. It's like he came alive for a little while. And when I had packed his bag, thinking he was actually going to go into a nursing uh, facility, I had, I had remembered to put his big uh, Bible in there, his large print Bible, because he doesn't see so well. And so I said, Dad, I, I'm, I'm going to run home, and I'll be back again. I came back to do the Good Friday service. And, um, and he said, well, where's my Bible? I said, it's, it's right over here. So I left, and I had a wonderful nurse. You know, our, our, I, I'm just so impressed by our medical professionals you know, they receive a lot of criticism, but I'll tell you what, there's so many doctors and nurses that just are just tremendous, tremendous people. And uh, when I came back uh, on that Saturday, I walked into his room, and Jamie, the nurse, had put this piece of paper up for all the other people walking in the room to see. And here's, I took a picture of it because it was so, it says, comfort measures only Please protect Bible from damage. Keep in view of patient. I just thought about my dad, and I thought about, you know, how important the word was and is to him. 
It's like in all the things he's going through, facing end of life, all that mattered was the truth. The confidence of, of this I know to be true. And then before dad really faded away, he was alert enough to ask me a very strange question. He kind of turned over on his side and he looked at me and he said, Dale, he says, something's changed in you. I said, what? He goes, do you still believe? <laughs> I'm like, wow, what do I look like right now? <laughs> I said, yes, dad, I still believe. I still believe in the Bible. I still believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I still believe in heaven. And he just, he just did one of those Okay, and turned back over and started to snore. <laughs> what do you believe? What do you believe? Who do you believe? Do you know what you believe? Do you believe what you know? Let's pray. Father, in these, these strange days, strengthen our faith and our resolve as men, as fathers, as husbands, as mothers, as wives, as students, as, as individuals, strengthen our resolve that in the confusion and chaos of this culture, we know in whom we have believed and are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day.